the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blind is our producer. Clark Hilton engineering today's program. Today we'll talk with Kim Erickson. She is the author of Surviving Sorrow. She is herself a survivor, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. The book is published by Moody. She'll join us in this first hour. We'll also talk with Kent Anon. He holds a Master's of Divinity. He's the Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College. Working with the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, they have prepared a volume for um, churches to help them navigate the coronavirus era. Preparing your church for coronavirus, COVID-19, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual. By the way, you can access that at the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. There's a link to the uh, document which you can download for free. He'll be joining us in the five o'clock hour. Portions of our program today, by the way, are brought to you by Liberty, Coin, and Currency. Well, President Trump last night announced in a televised address that the U.S. was suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for 30 days, beginning Friday at midnight in an effort to slow the spread of the coronavirus. We made a life-saving move with early action on China. Now we must take the same action with Europe, the president told the nation. Well, his address came hours after the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 a pandemic and the number of uh, confirmed cases in the United States climbed to more than 1,200. The president said the new travel exemptions did not apply to the United Kingdom. The virus will not have a chance against us. No nation is more prepared or more resilient, he said. We are all in this together. We must put politics aside, stop the partisanship and unify together as one nation and one family, end quote. Well, that may take the act of the Holy Spirit because I'm not sure we're capable as a nation of making that determination, so we can pray to that end. Anyway, a European diplomat told Reuters the White House didn't notify European officials before the televised address. The proclamation applies only to humans, not goods and cargo, a White House official told Fox News, correcting the president's statements, or at least the general nature of his statement. Those uh, transporting goods will not be admitted into the country, but the goods will. Uh, The president later signed a presidential proclamation that suspends the entry of most foreign nationals who visited certain European countries in the past two weeks. The suspension does not apply to legal permanent residents of the United States, according to that statement. Well, Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, tested positive for the coronavirus, according to a statement posted by Hanks on social media last night. Hello, folks. Rita and I are down here in Australia. We felt a bit tired, like we had colds and some body aches. Rita had some chills that came and went, slight fevers too, to play things right as is needed in this world right now. We were tested for the coronavirus and were found to be positive. The 63-year-old actor wrote in a statement on Twitter. He continued, well now, what to do next? The medical officials have protocols that must be followed. We Hanks will be tested, observed, and isolated for as long as public health and safety requires. Not much more uh, to it than uh, a day-to-day Uh, One day at a time approach we will keep the world posted and updated. Take care of yourselves. Well, Hanks and Wilson, also 63, were in Australia filming an 
uh, untitled Elvis Presley biopic. Uh, Hanks plays Presley's manager, Colonel Tom Parker, very familiar name to many. Well, an internal memo from the campaign of former Vice President Joe Biden said it's nearing impossible for Senator Bernie Sanders to regain the lead in delegates after losses in several of the Democrats' presidential primary contests. The memo said the campaign netted 160 delegates, including up to 81 on Tuesday. Biden campaign officials said they expected his lead to expand in some of our strongest states, Arizona, Florida, Illinois, Ohio and Georgia. Of the 682 delegates awarded in those states, conservative estimates have us winning more than 400 delegates and netting more than 150 delegates, the memo read. Well, the official said wins for Sanders in Vermont, Colorado and Utah haven't collected him enough delegates to be able to compete. The memo's released uh, release rather came after Sanders followed following a drubbing in Tuesday's uh, round of primaries vowed Wednesday to press on with his presidential campaign. And the World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus a pandemic. The president announced a 30-day ban on travel from Europe over the cor- uh, coronavirus threat. And Dow is down 20 percent from last month. The uh, record close and dipped at the uh, lowest rate since uh, the 80s. And NBA has suspended its season indefinitely after Utah Jazz player tested positive for the coronavirus. And the NC2A basketball tournaments set to take place with only essential staff and limited family attendance has been changed to no go. The Supreme Court justices have allowed remain in Mexico, the asylum policy of the president to continue. And candidate Bernie Sanders has vowed to stay in the race and debate even after crushing primary losses to Joe Biden. Ilhan Omar has revealed she married the man she denied having an affair with. And it goes on. Find my note here. I don't want to, certainly don't want to end with that. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, sentenced to 23 years in prison for sexual assault, began serving his sentence immediately. On this day in history, 1912, the Girl Scouts of the USA has its beginnings with Juliet Gordon Lowe of Savannah, Georgia. She established the first American troop of Girl Scouts, or Girl Guides. She'd probably be very surprised with some of what's emphasized in the Girl Guides today. 1923, inventor Lee DeForest publicly demonstrates his sound-on-movie film system called Phonofilm in New York City. And on this day in history, 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt delivers the first of his 30 radio addresses that came to be known as Fireside Chats, telling Americans what was being done to deal with the nation's economic crisis. 1947, President Harry S. Truman announces what would become known as the Truman Doctrine to help Greece and Turkey resist communism. And 1993, Janet Reno is sworn in as the first female U.S. Attorney General. Finally, on this day in history, 2009, financier Bernie or Bernard Madoff pleads guilty in New York City to 11 federal charges in the largest Ponzi scheme in U.S. history. Well, as mentioned, the president announced last night in a televised address that the U.S. is suspending all travel from Europe to the U.S. for 30 days, beginning Friday at midnight in an effort to slow the spread of the coronavirus. He struck a serious tone during his address from the Oval Office and said, we made a life-saving move with early action in China. Now we must take the action with Europe. His address came hours after the World Health Organization had declared the COVID-19 a global pandemic. The virus will not have a chance against us. No nation is more prepared. Well, the European diplomat told Reuters that the White House didn't notify European officials before the address. Shortly after the president made the announcement, Saudi Arabia announced that it would ban travel to and from the European Union as well. There will be exemptions for Americans who have undergone appropriate screening, and these prohibitions will not 
only apply to the tremendous amount of trade and cargo, but various other things as we get approval, the president said. Anything coming from Europe to the United States is what we are discussing. Well, that was later walked back. The proclamation only applies to humans, not goods and cargo, a White House official said the next day. Those transporting goods will not be admitted into the country, but the goods themselves will. President later signed a proclamation suspending uh, the entry of most foreign nationals who have visited European nations with the COVID virus incidents. Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, not surprisingly, released a joint statement minutes later following the address and saying the best way to help keep American people safe and ensure their economic security is for the president to focus on fighting the spread of the coronavirus itself. They said Trump failed to address the lack of coronavirus testing kits. Well, as the financial markets continue to fluctuate, stoking fears of economic downturn, the president announced that he will be asking the Small Business Administration, a sector of the federal government, government to provide low interest loans to small businesses negatively impacted by the virus. Invoking emergency authority, the president asked Congress to authorize a $50 billion initiative uh, toward uh, the effort. This is in addition to the $8.3 billion of funding that has already been allocated to fight the virus. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the governor of the state of Oregon spoke this morning saying no gatherings of more than 250 people in Oregon are allowed for the next four weeks. Portland's popular Shamrock Run typically draws about 35,000 runners plus spectators and vendors to the downtown Portland area. That's not going to happen. Again, the governor announcing that all gatherings of more than 250 people in Oregon will be canceled for the next four weeks in an effort to slow the spread of the coronavirus. That means many sports and entertainment events, 10K runs, conferences, lectures, religious gatherings of more than 250 people and other planned events won't happen. The governor said public schools should remain open, but she said all non-essential school-associated gatherings and group activities such as parent group meetings, field trips, competitions should be canceled. Now, in the Seattle area, the public schools there have been canceled for a period of, I think it's as many as six weeks. So who knows if Oregon will eventually follow suit. What's happening in Seattle it has exceeded what's happened here. But the guidance for schools came hours after Oregon's largest public universities announced a series of policies to keep students safe. University of Oregon, Oregon State University, Portland State University all aim to limit student, uh, student interaction, including canceling in-person final exams and providing online classes. Wow, canceling final exams. Uh, the governor also issued guidance for employers saying that all measures should be taken to increase physical space between employees and to limit meetings and stagger work schedules. Nobody is immune to this virus. It can touch everyone, the governor said in a statement. We can't let a fear and anxiety stigmatize people. We are seeing cases across multiple countries and age groups and in people exposed through different circumstances. It's time for us all to do what we can to slow its spread and take care of one another. Well, her statewide ban on large gatherings mimics one that uh, Washington Governor Jay Inslee imposed on the Seattle uh, three Seattle area counties earlier on Wednesday as his state copes with the confirmed coronavirus cases, approximately um, 400 with 29 deaths. Oregon's coronavirus response grows more serious as the spread marches on. Well, hours before the governor made the announcement, the Oregonian reported a ban of uh, that magnitude was under consideration and explained uh, what it would um, mean for 
um, these kinds of public events, a fanless future for any large sport events or, or concert. It also could uh, cost jobs at Providence Park, for example, other major athletic and entertainment venues, conference facilities, hotels that cater to them. Uh, it's expected impact on Trailblazers games. Some of the large, vin- uh, large routine gatherings in Oregon was made moot earlier when the uh, league announced that it was suspending the season in the wake of a player's positive test for the uh, virus. So far, Oregon has 21 known cases of COVID-19 in 10 counties, with the largest concentration in Washington County, where eight people have tested positive for the virus. But testing has been severely limited, and the disease is believed to be circulating more widely in many Oregon communities. The governor said in her Wednesday night announcement, made shortly after 10 p.m., that the state health authority has expanded access to testing for the contagious virus uh, that is particularly deadly to elderly people and those with underlying health conditions. She said the doctors at clinics can order tests from commercial laboratories at their discretion without state authorization. She also said the state has reached agreements with five hospital systems to test Oregonians for COVID-19. And she said health care providers are no longer required to wear N94 masks to collect samples for testing, which is another barrier. Workers will only be required to wear a regular mask, gown, gloves, and eye protection, which she said will make testing simpler for healthcare workers and easier for patients to obtain. We certainly want to protect the health and the safety of healthcare workers who make tremendous sacrifices in order to serve this population. The governor said that events and gatherings at which people can remain at least three feet apart are still admitted. Um, these events in the Portland-Vancouver area have been canceled, uh, just so you'll know. Uh, The Rose Quarter in Portland has canceled all events. Broadway in Portland canceled all remaining performances of Disney's Frozen uh, the 12th through the 22nd of this month. The University of Oregon football team scheduled open practice on March the 14th at Hillsborough Stadium has been canceled. Portland State football's spring game is canceled. Major League Soccer announced that it was suspending the season for the next 30 days. Organizers postponed the 42nd annual Shamrock Run after the governor's announcement. The Humane Society for Southwest Washington canceled the Yappy Hour gathering event on the 14th. Abby's Closet canceled the 16th annual prom dress giveaway uh, at the Oregon Convention Center. Organizers will find a way to distribute the dresses. Uh, outside of that uh, scheduled event, Kells Irish Pub and Kells Brewery canceled the 29th annual St. Patrick's Day Irish Fest. And Gresham Barlow Science Expo will not be held on the 13th at uh, Gresham High School. The NBA has suspended uh, the season indefinitely. The 2020 NC2A Women's Basketball Tournament games will be played without fans in attendance. I think that has since been changed. And Powell City of Books has canceled several upcoming events as well. You can check your local listings for um, information about other things that have been canceled. As I mentioned, the University of Oregon, effective Sunday the 15th, will cancel non-essential events and gatherings of more than 50 people. No final exams will be offered in person for winter term. And for the first three weeks of the spring term, which starts on the 30th of this month, U of O will deliver all classes remotely. Effective on Sunday, all non-essential university travel, both domestic and international, is suspended indefinitely. Students, faculty, and staff should consider not 
not traveling during spring break, and the campus remains open and operating under a normal schedule, including business functions, office hours, and other support um, operations. Residence halls will stay open over spring break and beyond, and limited dining will be available during the spring break. At Oregon State University, effective the 14th of this month, campus and OSU facilities and operations statewide, they will remain open, but the winter term finals exam week and activities will be delivered remotely where possible. All non-essential OSU-sponsored travel will be suspended. All OSU employees will be encouraged to work remotely where work responsibilities and duties allow. And all OSU students, faculty and staff, are encouraged to avoid personal travel over spring break. As far as Portland State University, the spring term classes will be offered as scheduled and most classes will be taught remotely. In mid-April, university officials will reassess the next steps based on guidance from health officials. PSU is going to remain open. Students will be able to access support services to ensure that they stay on track with their academic studies, including offering of the classes in which they have registered. And as a way to reduce the spread of the virus, they urge the campus community to keep in-person gatherings to a minimum. PSU is urging students, faculty, and staff to use remote access and online formats for meetings and optional events. Well, this certainly has an impact on spring break for lots of people who had specific plans. We also learned that two residents at a veterans nursing home in Lebanon in Lynn County have now tested positive for the virus. The Oregon Health Authority announced Wednesday night, signifying a dramatic and troubling turn at the de- as the uh, pandemic runs rampant across America. These are words that probably are an overstatement when you consider the total population, the known numbers who have contracted the, the virus and the number of deaths. But nonetheless, the outbreak at the Edward C. Alworth Oregon Veterans Home marks the first at a senior residential center in Oregon. Both infected patients are men who are at least 80 years old. It's unclear how they became infected and the cases have been labeled as community spread. Both men had symptoms and sought medical treatment prior to being tested on Wednesday. Two other residents were tested and were negative. The home has 151 residents, according to state officials, and all of them, as well as care providers, will now be tested for the virus. Nearly all of the residents are older than 70 and about a third are 90 or older. We also learned today that the Oregon High School Basketball State Tournaments have been canceled. The OSAA announced earlier in the day all remaining winter sports, high school championships, including this week's Class 6A, 5A, and 4A basketball state tournaments have been canceled amid the ongoing coronavirus concerns. The Oregon School Activities Association announced this morning the Class 5A basketball tournaments at Oregon State University in Corvallis were the first to be suspended. About an hour later, the OSAA said on Twitter that after consulting with schools and venue partners, the Class 6A at the University of Portland and Class 4A at Forest Grove High School would also uh, not be played. As this unprecedented public health emergency continues to evolve, we believe that the responsibility of our member schools and communities regarding the health and safety of participants remains our highest priority. OSAA Executive Director Peter Weber said in the release. Well, the decision also means the cancellation of the Dance and Drill Championships, which were to take place later this month at Veterans Memorial Coliseum in Portland. The release of further states uh, that the OSAA is working with their ticketing partners to ensure those who purchase tickets for future sessions will be reimbursed. And it continues. Up next, we're going to talk with Kim Erickson. She is the author of Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today 
by Liberty Coin and Currency. When my next guest's three-year-old son tragically passed away, she found plenty of resources on grieving. She says what she really needed, though, was someone who could well, give her advice for living, not just grieving. How do I get through the grocery store without crying? What do I do with my son's things? When will my mind stop replaying the emergency room scene? Now, 10 years later, she's written that book with vulnerability, a deep well of wisdom and the practical knowledge of someone who's been there. She walks grieving moms through the life after death process from how to plan the funeral to how to deal with friends, family, holidays and birthdays. It's a profound resource uh, from a mom who has lost a child and for her friends and family who want to uh, serve her well. Well, Kim Erickson began following Christ after the death of her three-year-old son in 2008. Kim began a writing and teaching ministry to help other women. She's the author of His Last Words, What Jesus Taught, and prayed in his final hours and contributed to Hope Lifter, Creative Ways to Spread Hope When Life Hurts. She is an attorney and practices immigration law. She lives in Florida with her husband and her son, Ethan. She joins us today to talk about her book, Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. Kim Erickson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was a that was maybe the best introduction I've ever received in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you deserve a good introduction. This is such a difficult subject, um, but I'm grateful that you have um, decided to provide a resource for women that was not available to you as you were in the most acute phase of grieving the loss of your three year old son. Yeah, I'm. I'm honored to do it. Uh, it took a long time. <laughs> To gather up that courage and be able to do it, and um, but uh, the Lord really just kept pressing on me, like moms need this. There are moms out there who need help, yeah. and so I hope that's my prayer for this book. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, this isn't just a book about grieving, but how to how to move forward in the in the process of grieving, but all of the details and things that that follow. Um, there weren't resources available for that. You felt compelled to write this book to offer that kind of resource, a lifeline for grieving mothers. Describe the nature of your book as opposed to um, others that might deal with the subject of grieving, but not necessarily the practical aspects that you uh, you have written about. Sure. Um, you know, in this book, in Surviving Sorrow, you won't hear about any of the stages of grief or anything like that. You won't really hear a lot about grieving at all, except through my experiences and my my stories and, and what happened with us. But then each under each chapter is a survival step. Like, mm-hmm. how do you survive this? And I kind of go through like, okay, this is what happened to me during this stage, you know, during these early months. And, you know, this is are some things I tried. And, um, and then I try to give them a list. Every chapter has a list of ideas to how to survive this. And those are not just my ideas, but, you know, it's been, gosh, it's almost 12 years. This April will be 12 years. And, um, you know, I've gathered, I've talked to so many other moms that I feel like they're so part of this that I've put their ideas in there, too, as I've heard different things that, that people do on, on holidays or birthdays or how they get through, you know, those first few weeks after the funeral and things like that. Mm-hmm. You begin the book with your story. You write, it was April 2008. I was married to Devin Erickson, the man who stole my heart and made me laugh. We had two healthy, active little boys. Austin had just turned three and Ethan was 15 months. I had a great job. We lived in my dream house, pool and hot tub included. I thought my life was just about perfect. We were so happy. But then Austin was diagnosed with strep throat on a Tuesday morning. Tell us your story. 
Well, I I was working in a in a in a law firm, and so my our babysitter and Devin had a lot of the childcare responsibilities. And but Austin is going back and forth to the doctor. Tuesday, he's diagnosed with strep throat. Um, Wednesday night, around midnight, I take him to urgent care. Uh, Thursday, um, my husband takes him back to the pediatrician. Um, I'm at work on Friday morning around nine o'clock and, and then that's when I get that call that, you know, no, no mom wants to get that call. Um, the babysitter is screaming, Austin, ambulance, Austin, ambulance, come, Kim. And, um, you know, this will tell you how far away from God I was. So I get this call that, that every parent dreads, fears, and it didn't even occur to me to pray. I have a 35 minute drive from my downtown mm. Phoenix law office to our home on in the suburbs on the west side. And I didn't even pray. It didn't even occur to me. And so that's how far away from God I was. Um, I thought I had everything in the world. And, and by the world's standards, I had a lot, but I didn't have God. And I didn't, I didn't, he didn't have any part of my life so much so it doesn't even occur to me yeah. to cry out to him. Mm. So, but that's um, but what I did want to do. I'm driving, you know, well, thank goodness somebody else said, well, you can't drive. So I grabbed my keys and they were driving. And, um, you know, what I did want to do is I wanted to be there with Austin. I wanted to be 35 minutes away with him. And so in my head, not out loud, but in my head, I am like screaming like you can imagine a mom will do. I'm like, Austin, I'm coming, you know. Austin, can you hear me? You fight. You hear me. You stay with mommy. Can you hear me? I just kept trying to talk to him because, like I said, I was so far away from God. I, I didn't know how to talk to God. And so I am just in that despair moment. And I tell you, then all of a sudden, I'm screaming it out in my head. All of a sudden, something just washes over me like a wave in the ocean. Um, big, and I felt amazing. Like all of a sudden, I felt something that is beyond our words. And, you know, real deep in my soul, I was saying, Austin, you fight, you stay here with mommy. And all of a sudden, when that wave washed over me, I I heard him say, but mom, it's so pretty here. Mm. And I knew, like, I just knew in a moment that I was like, I knew it was so great. All I could say was okay. I said, okay. And then it was gone. And I was back in my car driving uh, <laughs> down to try to get to him. I knew, all of a sudden, I knew that, you know, the things I'd heard in my childhood, my family goes to church, my mom took us to church, all of a sudden I knew heaven was true. And it was a place, you know, it was a place that you could go. It wasn't um, any of the other stuff I'd heard. It wasn't clouds and you know, harps and floating along, you know, it was like a city, like I get on a plane and go there. I just, I knew it and it felt so amazing. Um, And so uh, that, sure, that was a Friday. Uh, That Sunday, you know, my whole family's flying in and my husband's family and and, um, they were so surprised when I demanded to go to church on Sunday. Um, But we did. And I gave my life to the Lord mm. that, that very minute, that Sunday, you know, Austin died on a Friday. And that Sunday, I raised my hand, said that prayer and lay it at the cross and said, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry I rejected you. I'm sorry I didn't listen. I'm sorry I turned to other things. And, and 
you know, and then I began my journey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a wild ride. <laughs> we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Kim Erickson, who lost her three-year-old son um, several years ago, and she's written a book to help surviving uh, mothers. It's titled Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. The book is published by Moody. We'll be back in a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing my conversation with Kim Erickson. She's an attorney and an author. Her book, Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss, written some years after losing her three-year-old uh, son. In the book, you um, write about how to navigate the overwhelming questions that come up in the early days of grief, which have to be difficult because there's so much going on in, in your head, but practical decisions have to be made. How do you navigate those early days of grieving and the decisions that must be made? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It is, um, you're in such a fog and yet everybody has to, you know, know where do you want this and what are you going to do with that and there's so many little decisions to be made that that feel so surreal. Like, what do you mean, you know, picking out an outfit for, you know, for his burial? Ah, you know, it's it's crazy. And I think that the best thing you can do is is get help. Get you need to delegate some of these things mm-hmm. to others. You need to enlist some other people to say to say, listen, it's okay to say I'm overwhelmed. I need some help. Can can somebody sit down with me and maybe make different categories of things that need to get done, right? Like people need to get picked up at the airport because <laughs> they're coming, you know, and people need places to stay. Um, meals are coming in. Um, where do you want the flowers? Where <laughs> All of these things. Um, and, you know, maybe you could make stations for here is where we'll collect all of the cards, you know. Here is where we'll collect all the things that have to do with um, the memorial service of the funeral. And so you just you have to get organized, and yet you're you're drowning. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so get ask for help and, and enlist those people around you. Um, but you have to be real specific because people are going to say, "What do you need?" You know, and you know, call me if you need me. And it's it's really hard to do sometimes, but you you do need to speak and give them specific tasks yeah, because otherwise yeah. they don't know what to do. Right? You guide your readers through multiple survival steps and spiritual steps that are very practical um, and, and helpful. Is it because it helps to relieve some of the pressure of decision-making and, and things that um, will overwhelm you if you're not prepared? Yeah, of course, because it just is too much. Like, it just keeps coming. And you know what's really strange that you don't think about is it comes for weeks. And, and even months later, you know, sometimes um, things will come up even weeks and months later. And so you really do um, need to be organized, believe it or not, um, with all the things that are coming at you. And so, yeah, getting some help and, and trying to, we made different storage bins for, for different things, like those um, plastic tubs, you know, mm-hmm. um, so you, we could keep some things organized. Um, we also use that same system for Austin stuff. You know, there were definitely some stuff that we wanted to use with our son, the baby, Ethan. And there was definitely some things that now that was not going to be okay to pass down. You know, like I didn't think I could handle passing down, you know, his teddy bear. <laughs> like, okay, that's got to go in a different bin. That has to go in a different bin. And so... It was it was also a way for us to to kind of sort through that very hard task of 
how do you go through their stuff? It's, it's really tough. And so we had a bin that was for giveaway, like other children would need this, and we can give that away. We had some that was going to go to the baby, um, some that I wanted to keep and I didn't want anybody to touch. Um, and so really, like, storage bins are surprisingly good way to yeah. get started. Yeah. Um, you make the point that um, it's necessary to talk about your grief um, opening up about it and the fears that are associated with it. How is that helpful to someone who's in the acute phase, which can stretch on for a very long period of time of, of grieving? Yes. I thought it was funny because I was funny now uh, that I look back and I go, Oh, I can't believe I didn't see it. But I thought that I was really um, kind of losing my mind a little bit. And I was, I was back at work, and I felt like I was handling the grieving okay. Like, I feel like I'm holding it together, and I'm doing okay with the grief and the grieving. But I'm having all this trouble at work. Like, I, I, I read something, and I, I can't understand what it says. I walk to the you know, break room, and I get there, and I forget why I'm there. Mm-hmm. So I go back to my office, and there's a bowl of soup. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I went to the break room for a spoon. And I didn't forget, you know, and then by the time I go back to the break room, I've already forgotten again. Like, I really felt like I was losing my mind in, in that way. And I, so I, I sought counseling at that time because I really thought something is just, I don't know what's happening. I really didn't make the connection mm-hmm. until she asked me, uh, and she said to me, you know, Kim, the grief has to come out. You know, the grief has to happen. It's going to happen. And I was really kind of trying to manage it. And so I had to make an appointment to grieve. Otherwise, I wasn't going to do it. I didn't want to do it. And so I, I had to schedule 15 minutes. We started with 15 minutes that I was put in the calendar at a certain time. And I needed to be alone. I didn't want anybody else around. Um, so I had to find a, a solitary place to be. And for 15 minutes, I had to agree that I would just let out whatever came, yeah. whether it was screaming, yelling, stomping, crying, sobbing, or laughing at some memory. You know, whatever came, I was supposed to let it out. And it helped so much. And then, you know, in a couple of weeks, we went to 30 minutes. What I felt like was if I, if I had let this out, it's going to overcome me. Like I'm holding it together because if I let it out, even if I let out a little bit, I'm, I'm going to be swallowed up with this grief. And that's, it feels that way, but that's not true. Yeah, yeah. You need to let it out. You write about the importance of communication when navigating the grieving process with a spouse. In fact, um, you uh, have a, a letter that was written uh, that talks about your your husband has written that talks about um, how to strengthen your marriage through the grieving process. Talk a little bit about how how to grieve with a spouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a we we would need several hours to talk about that for sure. It's tough, right? And everybody can imagine that it's tough. But when you read my husband's letter, um, he wrote it as a as a letter to to the mom, you know, on how to help her husband. And when you read that, you'll see like the sweetness and the love of your marriage. It's still there. It's still there. And your marriage can survive this. You you just you have to talk to each other. And I'll tell you, we're 12 years in almost, and that is still hard because if I'm having a bad day, but he doesn't look like he's having a bad day, like I don't want to make his day bad. And so it's really tough. But we have learned, you know, like we just need to say it. We need to say, hey, I'm having a tough, awesome day. 
today because otherwise sometimes our responses are a little snippy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our responses to each other are a little short um, and it can get in the way. But if you just say, like, I'm having a tough day today or I need some space, I need to, I need to go on a, on a walk on the beach all by myself today. Um, and so you just, you really do have to tell each other what you need. But I also think um, there's no reason this has to break your marriage. And there isn't. You, you two are the only ones in the world who really understand um, the heartbreak that you have. And so I, I think this can make your marriage stronger, deeper, more intimate, um, and just more beautiful yeah, if, yeah. if you seek it, you know. There's so much more in your book that our time does not permit us to delve into. It is very practical and sensitive, Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. The book is an excellent resource. How can our listeners connect with you? I have a website, it's Kim A. Erickson. So that's K-I-M, the letter A-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N.com. Well, Kim Erickson, thank you so much for your book, and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Appreciate thank it so much. much. Again, Surviving Sorrow, A Mother's Guide to Living with Loss. should be in every church library, I think. Very practical. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then in the second hour of the program, we'll talk with Kent Anand. He and an associate have put together a resource for churches, preparing your church for coronavirus, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual. You can download it at The Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. It is free of charge. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we'll talk with Kent Anand. He a, holds a Master's of Divinity. He's the Director of Human, Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College with the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. They've produced a, a document to help churches navigate this coronavirus era, preparing your church for coronavirus COVID-19, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual. You can find it at the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. You can download it there with all the uh, important uh, instructions. So check that out. He'll join us uh, in our next segment. We'll talk from uh, talk to him for a couple of segments. Well, the U.S. Capitol and nearby congressional offices buildings are being closed to the general public over coronavirus concerns, with Congress announcing today that they will, are allowing access only to lawmakers, staff, press, and official business visitors. The sergeant-at-arms um, for both the House and the Senate in a joint statement said that the temporary closure would begin at 5 p.m. local time, Eastern, on Thursday, and last through the 1st of April. It also extends to the Visitor Center. Following the guidance of the medical community, particularly the recent recommendation of D.C. Health, and in consultation with the Office of Attending Physician, the Sergeant-at-Arms of the House of Representatives and the Senate have issued a temporary closure of the Capitol Visitor Center to all tours, the statement said. In addition, access to the Capitol and the House and Senate office buildings will be limited to members, staff, credentialed uh, press, and official business visitors. Uh, We are taking this temporary action out of uh, concern for the health and safety of congressional employees as well as the public. The statement continued, we appreciate the understanding of those that planned visits interrupted by this necessary but prudent decision. Well, the announcement comes just a day after the World Health Organization designated coronavirus or COVID-19 an international pandemic. The president last night in an address to the nation from the Oval Office said he was calling for a temporary halt on air travel to the United States from Europe, excluding flights from the UK and those carrying cargo in an effort to contain the spread of the virus. The virus will not have a chance against us, the president said. 
Well, the uh, Representative Doug Collins, uh, Representative Paul Goser, um, Matt Gates, and Senator Ted Cruz, now acting White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, subsequently put themselves in self-quarantine uh, because earlier this week, attending a, uh, the attending physician for Congress released a statement announcing that several lawmakers made contact with an attendee of the a CPAC conference who tested positive for the virus. Both the president and vice president who had uh, uh, been appointed to lead the official coronavirus task force attended and spoke to CPAC. Neither came in contact with the individual who was later designated as ill. Meanwhile, Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate are considering new coronavirus legislation. The outbreak is believed to have originated at a, an animal and seafood market in the city of Wuhan, China. As of Thursday morning, there were more than 1,300 cases of coronavirus in the United States in 44 states, including Washington, D.C. The U.S. has so far seen 36 coronavirus-related deaths. The NBA has suspended its entire season under further uh, until further notice after a player on the Utah Jazz tested positive for coronavirus. The test resulted uh, result rather was reported shortly before the Utah Jazz were to take on the Olymp the o- Oklahoma City Thunder at Chesapeake Energy. Uh, arena. I'm not really a basketball fan. I prefer football. The game was immediately canceled and the affected uh, player was not in the arena, according to an NBA statement. The NBA is suspending game play following the conclusion of tonight's scheduled game until further notice. The statement read, the NBA will use this hiatus to determine next steps for moving forward in regard to the coronavirus pandemic. This came after the NC2A president announced on Wednesday that all Division One men and women basketball tournaments will be played in arenas without fans. That has since been changed. Los Angeles Lakers star LeBron James said last week that if uh, he showed up to an arena and there weren't fans, he wouldn't be playing. Little did he know he might not have the option. Uh, James uh, walked back those comments earlier on Wednesday after he learned that was a real possibility in talks with the NBA. Well, on Monday, the NBA, along with the NHL, the MLB, Major League Baseball and MLS, They announced that they could be closing locker rooms and clubhouses to the press in order to limit COVID-19 exposure. Well, that moved forward. As I mentioned, NC2A canceled the men's and women's basketball tournaments with the coronavirus uh, outbreak until further notice. And the National Hockey League suspended its uh, 2019-2020 season with the coronavirus outbreak the league announced today. The NHL said it hopes to resume play at some point later this season. The NHL advised teams earlier in the day not to conduct morning skates, practices, or team meetings as the league conducted a broader meeting with the Board of Governors over the next steps. It wasn't clear whether the NHL player had contracted the virus, so we don't know yet if that's the case. Meanwhile, Major League Baseball announced today it will be canceling the rest of spring training and delay the start of the regular season for at least two weeks. Uh, The MLB um, followed in the footsteps of the National Basketball Association, Major League Soccer, and deciding to put that season on hold. Both suspended their seasons, as has now the Major League Baseball. MLB will continue to evaluate ongoing events leading up to the start of the season, the league said in a statement. Guidance related to daily operations and workouts will be relayed to uh, clubs in the coming days as of 4 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time today, referring to today, forthcoming spring training games have been canceled and 2020 World Baseball um, Classic qualifier games in Tucson, Arizona have been postponed 
indefinitely. MLB and the clubs have been preparing for a variety of contingency plans regarding the 2020 regular season schedule. MLB will announce the effects on the schedule at an appropriate time and will remain flexible as events warrant with the hope of resuming normal operations as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Broadway will shut down tonight until April the 12th due to the virus outbreak. Several sources told the Post that in what uh, is the worst crisis in the industry since the attack of um, the World Trade Center in 2001, several shows will not be able to recover. The Minutes, a new play by Pulitzer Prize winner uh, uh, Tracy Letts, uh, that was to open on Sunday night is likely to close and never return. Martin McDonough's acclaimed Hangman is also unlikely to open this season, though it could come back in the fall. Sing Street, a new musical currently in rehearsals, will try to open in the fall, propped up by money from Barbara, well, somebody, a producer, and James Bond, uh, the producer of James Bond movies, The Phantom of the Opera, Broadway's longest-running show that draws heavily on foreign tourists, may well close down for good. A spokesman said nothing has been decided yet in terms of when Broadway reopens, but Actors' Equity has been pushing for the shutdown as the union members are concerned about contracting the virus. Rather, Equity is driving this, said the producer. If actors don't feel safe, they don't have to perform, and they will not. Also, the St. Patrick's Day parade in New York City was postponed for the first time in its history Uh, On Wednesday, with growing concern over, well, the fast-spreading virus. The 258-year-old event, which draws about 250,000 marchers as well as 2 million spectators, has taken place rain or shine every year since before the Revolutionary War. It's not clear if the parade will be rescheduled, or rather considering it's usually held March the 17th, the day the religious holiday is observed. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo delivered the bad news to parade-loving public, saying, I recommend that the parade leadership agreed to postpone this year's parade due to the high density and large volume of the marchers. Uh, also, Disneyland announced that it is, close, uh, it is closing its properties as well. Disneyland is closing. And the Democratic National Committee has moved Sunday's planned Democratic presidential debate in Phoenix, Arizona, to a studio in Washington, D.C., where former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Bernie Sanders will debate without a live audience because of the virus. Things are changing. Now, coming up, we're going to talk with Kent Anon. He holds a Master's of Divinity. He's the Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College. He's also an associate with the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. They have produced, he and an associate, Preparing Your Church for Coronavirus or COVID-19, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual. We'll hear what he has to say to help the church be prepared. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. InterVarsity Press authors Kent Anon and Jamie Atten uh, of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute just published a planning manual for churches to navigate the coronavirus. It's titled Preparing Your Church for Coronavirus COVID-19, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual. And my guest, Kent Anon, is a, holds a Master of Divinity. He's the director of the Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College. He joins us to talk about how churches can prepare for the coronavirus and uh, provide uh, this resource. And by the way, there's a link to this uh, guide on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page, so you can download it there. It's a great resource to help us think through and prepare for the days ahead. Kent, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Georgine. Great to be with you. Well, let's talk about the uh, Humanitarian Disaster Institute, first of all. Uh, obviously, based on the name of the organization, this is a, a group that has spent considerable time 
um, determining how to respond to various kinds of crises. Talk a little bit about the uh, Humanitarian Disaster Institute and how this uh, group is uh, providing this resource for the church in the coronavirus age. Yes, the Institute's been here for nine years. We have two parts. One is research, so it's researching, like you said, into best practices for responding and understanding what happens uh, in responses that make them go well or poorly, how we can have good leaders in these situations. And then the other part of what we have is a uh, master's degree program, so master's in humanitarian and disaster leadership that is preparing for people to serve. And in the past, it's been served, you know, after earthquakes or hurricanes or tornadoes or serving with refugees or poverty. But right now, it's, uh, it also has an eye towards helping people through situations like this, the coronavirus. Now, the guide that you have pro- uh, provided is called Preparing Your Church for Coronavirus COVID-19. When you think about the church, the average listener might not think, well, what is there to prepare for? Uh, why is this a helpful manual to think through some of the things that may not occur to us naturally if we've never been through a situation like this, where uh, being together might pose a health risk not only to ourselves but to others? Exactly. I think that's part of it is I, I think people look to church in moments like this to be able to gather in, in the, you know, the ups and downs of life, the ups and downs of a community. We gather together for so many of us in church as a way to uh, renew our faith, to encourage each other and What's striking about this situation is is that gathering together um, in many communities is, would be raising the risk. And so what we wanted to do is, with that in mind, and knowing this is both in complexity and scale different than than we've really faced before as a country and as a, an American church, we wanted to give a guide, especially to help through this time of preparedness and transition, when we're still uncertain exactly what everything's going to look like in three or four weeks. But right now we can prepare. And the reason it's important to prepare is churches can be a place where we're just as fearful as everybody else and we're not sure what's coming. But it also can be a place where we slow down, root ourselves in Scripture, root ourselves in prayer, and think about the strengths and gifts God's given us. And then from there, begin to prepare and see what strengths and gifts we can do to encourage each other, to help each other, and especially to look out for those in our community who are most vulnerable. In the introduction of the Step by Step Research Informed and Faith-Based Planning Manual that we're referring to, Preparing Your Church for uh, coronavirus, you begin with the scripture, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, do not be anxious for anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then you uh, in the next paragraph say, as we begin, let's start with prayer. Uh, it's easy to begin uh, with the work of our hands. What can we do? But you suggest that we begin by considering what the scriptures have to say and then to calling out and asking God for wisdom and help in this uh, this season that provides not only a kind of a fearful time, but also an opportunity for the church. Exactly. I think it's both of those times. There's there's fair fear, you know, it's for us to be prepared and, and we should be ready or ready ourselves for what's coming. Uh, and then it's also a time to be growing in love. And so I think this is what we've tried to do is really give a tool that helps people to do both of those. Prepare well, uh, think seriously about how to make sure that we're protecting each other from the virus. Um, At the same time, to not be acting primarily out of fear, but out of love. And when we do that, I mean, I think the way that we find we can make that transition from fear to love, from anxiety to Mm -hmm. peace is in Scripture and in prayer. So we just thought it was really important to start right there. You make the point also in the introduction that the guide draws on biblical wisdom and your team's research. 
um, insights and best practices from your collaborative work with local, state, and federal uh, public health agencies. Uh, it's a, a, a the plan that you're uh, suggesting. Uh, the outline of a plan is a tool that. Um, can be used to help us navigate this uh, well, not just for the sake of the church, the insular church, but also as an example to the broader community. Where do we begin as the church to think about what's the best way for us to function as the body of Christ under these circumstances uh, for the sake of those who are members of the church? Yes, I think that the first step is prayer, and then it's to get together and say, we're not going to pretend this isn't happening. We step into reality, knowing God is with us. And so our step number one is to get organized, <clears throat> excuse me, and reflect on Scripture, and then start thinking, oh, let's let's act out of the gifts God's given us. That's really important. The prayer, Scripture, and starting with the gifts God's given us to leverage current ministries that we have. So you know, are we especially strong in in uh, ministry to children, are we especially strong in ministries to refugees, to older adults? You know, and so starting there and starting to think, are we really good at communication? So thinking, what are the gifts God's given us, and how are we going to use them? And then we think as a next step, it's really to create a health team. So who is a, you know, five to twelve people in your church who can represent different strengths, represent the staff, maybe some medical health professionals in your church, and you get the right people in the room. Say, we're here. So we can communicate well. So we're looking out for all the different parts of our church community. And also so we're getting the right information and together making the wisest decisions possible. So it's really those first two steps that can help help uh, get everyone on the right track and, and towards wise decisions, but also to making sure that everybody's feeling cared for in this, these moments of anxiety. I think one of the first questions that comes up in a congregation is whether or not we should meet as a congregation. I know here in the state of Oregon earlier today, the governor announced that uh, gatherings of uh, over 250 people would not be permitted in the state. So larger churches are then restricted from uh, from coming together as a whole. Maybe home groups would, would be an alternative. Um, that's kind of the starting point. Should we come together? And if so, how sh- what should that look like? I think that, you know, that gets into the public health part where, um, you know, we, we hope and pray for our uh, government agencies and governors, like the example you gave, to give us those kind of directions because they're really the public health experts in this. So I think what we want to do is be sure that we're relying on uh, good information, like trustworthy sources for these Sources that aren't raising our anxiety unnecessarily, but are giving us the best information that you can, like the CDC and county government and state government. So I think that's a starting point. I think another part is, you know, it's different in each part of the country. So that's going to be something that the health team can evaluate. Uh, And then finally, I think, as I've been talking about different churches around the country, an important part of this is, you know, a, a lot of people from all those scientists are saying are going to be okay and make it through this, but it's mm-hmm. vulnerable people with, you know, with uh, compromised immune systems or older people that are there. So part of the decision making then becomes not just am I going to be okay, but are are the people who could be vulnerable in our community or the person who comes who's okay, but then they go back and they have an elderly parent at home. So some of the interesting, you know, some churches may meet. Some won't, depending on the, those can be both wise decisions, depending where you are in the country. But I also really like that some churches are trying to offer both alternatives in places that aren't as deeply infected. So that, okay, if you have, uh, I talked to someone today and his daughter, a 15-year-old daughter has a compromised immune system. So if their church can provide streaming as well as if it's a small church meeting in person, you know, then you're starting to really care for people who are in different uh, situations. So it, it's really fluid. 
What's mm-hmm. important is that people are making wise decisions together based on the best information and on the lens of loving our most vulnerable neighbors. Yeah. You have a, a page in your handbook, uh, the COVID-19 handout, choices you can make to stay emotionally healthy. And I think that's one of the areas where people struggle the most. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that, how to help people stay emotionally healthy, uh, because we are apparently vulnerable to this um, uh, virus. And while most of us will, will survive it quite well, there are those who are vulnerable among us as well. So we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation to talk a bit more about that. Again, we're talking with Kent Anon. He's the Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College, and he's the co-author of Humanitarian Disaster, I should say, Preparing Your Church for a Coronavirus, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual that's produced by the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with Kent Anon. He's the Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College and with the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, which has prepared a um, resource for churches called Preparing uh, your church for co- for the coronavirus, COVID-19, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual. There's a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page to the website where you can download this resource for your church as you're thinking through how to uh, how to proceed. Now, uh, just before the break, I mentioned the page on uh, choices you can make to stay emotionally healthy, and that may be the the greatest challenge. Uh, for uh, not only for those of us in the church, but those uh, outside the church who are trying to navigate what can be a very scary set of circumstances. What are some of the things we should do? Yes, one is just to slow down enough to pay attention to your body and your emotions. So I think paying attention to what hap- what's happening is, is really important. You know, one example of this is, you know, I, I've been in these kind of situations. I've worked in other crisis areas in different parts of the world, I think to slow down and say, I'm feeling sad. You know, like my church just closed, my school's school closed. I don't know where this is leading. Uh, and I feel sad right now. And I think we don't want to rush past that because it can build up and ang- add to our anxiety. And then we want to think, of course, about the best practices of being healthy, washing our hands, all the things we keep hearing about. Another one that's really important is to rely on good resources of information. And probably it's not best, for example, these days to watch you know, 13 hours straight of the 24-hour cable news shows. That's not going to help us stay emotionally healthy um, at the moment. But think, oh, can I go for a walk as well or talk with a friend on the phone? So we want to think about that. We want to eat well, stay active, do rest. And then I think as Christians, another added on piece to think about is to say, do I have any opportunities here to help others? Mm -hmm. It might not be in person, but it might be, uh, someone who's, you know, if we're doing social distancing, maybe lonely, struggles with something like that. Like, how can I help someone else? And also, if I'm feeling overwhelmed as a body of Christ, we don't just help others. We also know that we need help sometimes. And so is there someone I should be asking for some kind of help? So if we can do exercise to the extent we can, sleep, don't just take in constant streams of news, uh, and do this kind of self-care, get good information. Uh, we should at least be doing that to make sure we're staying as healthy as we can emotionally as we go through this stress. Yeah, yeah. Another uh, part of the uh, resource guide is uh, strengthening the preparedness through collaborations, where churches uh, connect to one another and perhaps help to meet the needs of a community together. 
Yes, absolutely. The, n- none of us, like, part, we, in this manual, we're not the, advocating that any church should become like a, uh, a miniature public health response team. You know, that's not, this, that's not what church is for. There are other agencies and groups that do this. There's a hospital, there are local and state agencies and national agencies to do that. So we're not trying to become uh, medical professionals, all of us, but we do each strengths and we aren't going to have all the strengths. So it's thinking about, oh, if we can look out for uh, elderly community here, but another church, maybe they're especially looking out for uh, refugees. Uh, is one group really good at pre- preparing uh, handouts and materials that like a devotional to get through this time? And maybe that can be a collaboration instead of they just do it for their own church. They do it for everyone in these cases. And some, some churches are going to have great uh, streaming sort of like webinar um, live streams and everything. Like if you can be able to transition into doing this remotely. And it's just aren't going to have that technology to do it. So uh, I really think it's a chance as well. This is hard. It's a stress. But we want to look for opportunities to collaborate and really be the body of Christ for each other as individuals, but also as churches for each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, finally, you, you uh, write about adapting to changing needs. What's true today may be quite slightly altered in the future or maybe dramatically altered in the uh, distant future. What are some of the things we can do to be prepared to uh, adapt to changes that are very likely to come? I think one of these things that as, as church that's really important is to be really good at communicating. And not just good at communicating, but communicating how we're going to communicate. So as people in churches to say, okay, we're going to do this by email, but we know some people don't get emails from those. You know, text them, or are you going to move to text? I think to have this really good communication when we know the situation is so fluid is essential, and to keep an eye on out um, for who might slip through the cracks of communication, who doesn't have a computer, uh, who, who maybe doesn't, isn't very literate, you know, or doesn't have as much education. So I think if we can communicate well, work on reliable information, have a good team that's looking out for the whole church, you know, pay attention, try to stay as healthy as we can individually so we can also help others, all these things and this whole plan that we put forward uh, is really going to help churches to adapt what will certainly for for weeks and maybe months continue to be a, a evolving situation. Well, this is just such a, a wonderful resource that's been made available uh, to the church to think through some of the issues that may not be intuitive. You, you know, the, you've had the opportunity to deal with lots of crises, kinds of situations where most churches in the United States have not. So I really want to recommend um, our listeners to avail yourselves of this resource. Again, Preparing Your Church for Coronavirus, COVID-19, a step-by-step research-informed and faith-based planning manual. It's been uh, produced by the Humanitarian Disaster Institute, and my guest, Kent Anon, is the Director of Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College. I so appreciate your time talking with us about this, and uh, hope that uh, many of us will take the sound advice that you have provided through this uh, resource. Yeah, thanks, Jean, for, for making sure that your community that is talking about these. And, uh, you're, you're part of the country is, are in our prayers, uh, as well as you're in some ways ahead and dealing with this yeah, sooner yeah. than some of the rest of us are. Yeah. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thank you, Jeremy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Again, Kent Anon. There are some unique challenges, and we'll talk about uh, what the church in Singapore has learned through all of this. They're about a month ahead of us, but there are unique challenges that churches have to face. I was noticing one um, a church in uh, uni- um, 
Where is this? In Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Every week at the University United Methodist Church there, congregants come forward for communion. Now, what happens in the coronavirus era with communion? Uh, But in uh, light of concerns about this virus, the church has ordered boxes filled with hundreds of prepackaged communion cups and wafers. So while they may be handled on the outside, what you actually consume is protected. Uh, In a variety of ways, we're just minimizing the level of physical touch that's happening in the life of the church while still trying to continue somewhat normal activities. That's a quote from the pastor there who is coordinating with his staff and communicating with fellow clergy in his area about best practices for corporate worship under the new circumstances. Uh, What we're saying related to communion is that what we're trying to do is minimize any kind of unnecessary touch. And, you know, that's uh, something of a challenge. I had a conversation earlier today with a friend who uh, was recently widowed and commenting on how much he misses just that physical contact that you have uh, in the context of the community of faith. Uh, and to be deprived of that has been a real challenge for her, and I think others as well. For many elderly people, um, being touched and embraced is uh, something that doesn't come on a regular basis. And these new set of circumstances has made that <clears throat> something we are being encouraged to do less and less of. Well, the pastor said the purchase of these special cups is part of a proactive way of thinking about or adjusting practices moving forward, along with changing how people greet one another, fill out registration cards to note their presence and contribute to the weekly offering. Uh, His historic church of some 1,800 members with children and youth ministries, as well as a significant percentage of senior adults, is far from the only one considering these kinds of packaged products for the a sacred tradition across the uh, range of Christian churches. Yes, we've seen a tenfold increase in sales of this item, says the executive uh, director of the United Methodist Publishing House, when asked if the church supplier had received more requests for the packaged options for communion. A spokesperson for Lifeway Christian Resources, an arm of the Southern Baptist Convention that offers church supplies, said it's uh, seen a slight increase in the sale of fellowship cups, pre-filled communion cups that come uh, packaged with both juice and uh, wafer. But it's uh, unknown how long this uh, trend will continue. But in the midst of this corona uh, virus, it has been uh, there has been something of an uptick. So there are all kinds of things related to church, how we relate to one another, how we are seated in the congregation, whether or not we meet at all. I was just looking a few moments ago that one of the larger churches in our community, in fact, exceeds that 250 threshold that the governor announced, and they will be uh, meeting um, in their, well, not meeting in their homes. They'll be using the virtual church by meeting online. Some of the smaller churches may not have the technology set up to do that as easily as others. I know one of my friends who recently had a surgery just went to Facebook and she recorded a worship service that she did that provided opportunities for others who were also somewhat isolated. So there are ways that we can connect uh, when we're not in the physical presence of others, but can make a real difference. So when we come back, we'll talk about what's happening in Singapore and what we can learn from the churches there. Uh, they're about a month ahead of us with regard to this coronavirus and some of the steps that have had to, been, uh, to, to be taken in order to protect the people. That, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Christianity Today recently featured a column on seven lessons we can learn from Singapore's church for when the coronavirus reaches 
uh, hours. Uh, and they point out that stores emptied of sanitizers, uh, canned food, toilet paper, water, fights over the sale of limited supplies of face masks, anger as congregations continue to gather for worship, prompting accusations of a lack of social responsibility, was all faced by the Singapore church, which the Billy Graham Association affirmed as the Antioch of Asia. Now, if you're not familiar with the scriptures, you might want to look that up. Anyway, churches in Singapore have already weathered the anxiety that's now sweeping the world <clears throat> and many of us. On the 7th of February, the nation state's government raised its national risk assessment level from yellow to orange, which indicates moderate disruption to daily life and in particular to large gatherings of people. Well, on the 7th of March, that marked the one month anniversary of Singapore, which has uh, seen about 166 cases, but zero deaths going orange. Orange. Well, this means that for the past month, local churches, which account for about one in five Singaporeans, have been forced into an extended period of self-examination, reflection, and action, and we might learn something from them. Well, the process hasn't been straightforward with a senior pastor affiliated with the coronavirus and subsequently discharged, entire denominations suspending services, church-based preschools closing, very public online disputes, in a nation that strictly enforces religious harmony on how the situation is being handled by church leaders. Well, to help churches here in the United States, in Italy, Brazil, and in other countries now facing the decision that churches in China, Korea, and Singapore have been grappling with for weeks, there are several um, lessons that we can learn from our brothers and sisters in Singapore. With what they've learned over the last month, it might save us from some of the same uh, challenges. The first thing they suggest, your church worship will change. Hold tight to what is sacred. Hold everything else loose. Congregations are creatures of habit. Churches are built on tradition, liturgies, order of worship. Over time, every church's line between what is fundamental to the faith and what is merely institutionalized response gets blurred. Does communion have to be actual wine and unleavened bread uh, to still count as holy? You know, just as an example, every church and every member of your church will have different views on um, undiscussed questions. The COVID-19 or coronavirus outbreak presents a needed moment of doctrinal, well, stock taking, as they suggest. Every church board and pastoral team in Singapore has come together many times over the past month to grapple with what is non-negotiable in God's eyes. The biggest lesson has been navigating the road between fear and wisdom. That's a quote from one pastor from the city church there. It is especially tough as fear often has a way of masquerading itself as wisdom. How many precautionary measures are actually sound judgment and how many are, well, too much uh, such that the uh, they teeter over into irrational fear and anxiety. It's tough road to navigate as we had to both convey safety to our members by way of implementing recommended health measures and yet not succumb to the cultural climate of fear, anxiety, and self-preservation. He told Christianity Today that we do so in our notices by ensuring that we are not just communicating measures but also casting a vision for how the people of God in this time should interact and behave. In practical terms, a church response will vary depending on its doctrine, local context, and exposure to suspected cases of COVID-19. There's no correct answer. All are seeking the most uh, appropriate response in extraordinary times, precautions that Singaporean churches have taken to um, maintain service, include taking temperatures at worship services and smaller scale gatherings, mandating travel declarations and recording contact details of attendees to facilitate tracing of contacts if needed, suspending gatherings of more vulnerable groups such as the elderly and children, suspending communion or moving to alternatives such as prepackaged bread and wine, 
Moving away from hymnals to limit physical points of communal contact and using projection screens instead. Well, some have chosen to suspend their services entirely, and in some cases that's being mandated even here, what we can and cannot do in terms of the size of our groups. Another uh, suggestion, be a strong leader. Your members will want guidance. Uh, says one pastor of um, 316 Church, in moments of crisis, people are looking for leadership. The first responsibility of the leader is to maintain calm. Panic causes tunnel vision, which is terrible for decision making. Strong leadership reminds people that God is in control of every situation and there's never a reason to panic. He told Christianity Today that the leadership team found their role it was to teach from the Bible, minister to and encourage those uh, who were fearful. The process drove them to their knees, seeking divine wisdom in an unprecedented situation. Another bit of advice, there's no better time uh, to up your church's tech game. Now, we live in the 21st century, and there are ways to connect with one another that were not available in generations past. While the Singaporean government has said an upgrade to the red risk assessment level is unlikely, local churches have explored improvements to their video recording and live streaming capabilities in preparation for the worst-case total lockdown scenario. Seeing the need, various groups have put together websites and webinars with free advice for churches on how to switch to live streaming should that become necessary. Again, in the 21st century, we have tremendous resources available to us. Another word of advice, there's no better time to up your church's prayer game. Now, that's always good advice. At noon every day since Valentine's Day, the historic bells sound at St. Andrew's Cathedral in Singapore. It's in the heart of the city's civic district. And while phone alarms go off across the island, it's a signal to believers that it's time to stop whatever they're doing for a moment of united prayer in the face of the COVID-19 threat. I think that is a great idea to designate a certain time in the middle of the day when everybody recognizes let's stop and pray, although we are separate physically, pray corporately for our community and as a church. No better time for the church uh, than now to pray. Number five, expect backlash from both outside and inside the church. Inflammatory comments about race and religion are banned in Singapore under the Sedition Act and the recently updated Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. However, since two coronavirus clusters formed in two churches and negative associations have spread to the uh, uh, another sect there responsible for much of South Korea's outbreak, the church at large has come under scrutiny as Christians continue to meet in relatively sizable gatherings. The criticism is unfortunate but unavoidable. Non-Christians can't be expected to understand the tenets and teachings of the faith. But more painful is the criticism that has come from fellow Christians with every decision their leaders have to make. Decide to suspend services and be castigated for a lack of faith. Decide to continue to gather and be derided as socially irresponsible. Leaders found that they could not win. If you're pastoring a church in an area where a case of COVID-19 has surfaced, prepare for unprecedented pressure from all levels, from your board, from your staff to the pews. Uh, They will respond based on their own faith convictions and public health uh, opinions. Be prepared to go deeper into prayer than you've ever gone before. Again, advice from our Singaporean neighbors. And finally, love your neighbor. Good deeds will go a long way with a fearful public. This is an opportunity to have a significant impact on our community by finding ways to extend the love of Christ that may not have been available to us, that may not have been received well under other circumstances. So in the midst of all of this, if we turn our our time, our focus and attention away from ourselves and our own personal concerns while following the guidance that we've been given. Look for opportunities.
opportunities to love your neighbor and extend the love of Christ in constructive ways, whether that's a note of encouragement, it's uh, shopping for an elderly person who really needs to be isolated in your community, being mindful of the needs of the people around you. Good deeds will go a long way with a fearful public. And while much of the secular world's response to the virus has been inward looking, driven by fear, pastors in Singapore, they agreed that the COVID-19 situation presented a God-given chance to shine in the darkness of the moment. Uh, For that to happen, the church has to look beyond its own concerns and awaken to the opportunity. Having put in place the necessary measures in the church, we realized that this crisis has presented an opportunity to help and reach the community. An executive pastor from Cornerstone Community Church in Singapore says, After the initial window of adjusting to the new normal, churches have begun to observe how their local community has been affected. The needs are both practical, such as education on public hygiene for the elderly, and emotional with panic and uncertainty prevailing. Uh, in the week, uh, weeks after the first confirmed cases, there are opportunities to minister the love and grace and mercy of Christ and certainly the gospel as well. So what we can learn from our Singaporean brothers and sisters, just a brief list of things they suggest. Oh, and by the way, they say that amid all the bad news and the headlines, the good news of Jesus Christ is more relevant than ever. So this may be a crisis by some measure. It's also an opportunity to minister love to our neighbors. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Tomorrow we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news, so I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.